You're listening to Grace and Fire, brought to you by Emerging Women. Today, my guest is Esther Perel, a native of Belgium, fluent in nine languages, and a penetrating observer of the social and cultural patterns shaping our relationships today. Esther is a practicing psychotherapist and an organizational consultant to Fortune 500 companies. She is also the best-selling author of Mating in Captivity, Unlocking Erotic Intelligence. And her two TED Talks, The Secret to Desire in Long-Term Relationship and Rethinking Infidelity, a talk for anyone who has ever loved, have received approximately 10 million views. Esther Perel is considered one of the most insightful and provocative voices on personal and professional relationships and the science of human interaction. She will be a featured presenter at the 2015 Emerging Women Live Conference, October 8th to the 11th in San Francisco, California. We hope you can join us. In today's episode, Esther and I spoke about her definition of desire and the importance of owning our wanting, how women are socialized for connection and yet are challenged by the corresponding inability to connect with oneself. Experiencing freedom from perfection without the guilt. How imagination complements reality in relationships. And finally, what women can hold on to for stability in the ever-increasing gender-fluid era. Here is my juicy conversation, The Fluidity of Desire, with the insightful and practical Esther Perel. Welcome, Esther. I'm so excited to have you here on the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure for me to be with you as well. And every time you speak, I feel like a tender heart because my mother, who has passed away, had a very much thicker French accent than you have. And I've been listening to your audio book, your Mating in Captivity book, so I feel like you've been with me on my walks in the morning and listening to your content and yeah, it's kind of taking me back a bit. <laughs> but you know, we, we hear in utero, it's probably the first sense that we develop. So we are starting out with a very intimate connection. And if you want, I can even make my French accent a little stronger <laughs> so that I can channel you, mother. You see, <laughs> she spoke like this. <laughs> Oh, wow. <laughs> I know. Oh, no, it was very thick. But um, I think that, you know, when you have an accent like that, right, and you're talking about sensuality and sex and desire, and I think, you know, I, I don't know what your experience is, but it seems like you might have kind of carte blanche to say just about anything, right? Well, you know, the French accent works in both directions, especially in the United States, right? Sometimes it comes with a kind of a positive bias that says, oh, you must know that something that je ne sais quoi that French people often have in the realm of uh, the erotics. But then on the other side, you also have to uh, start with a kind of a warning sentence that says, no, no, I'm not French and I'm not morally depressed and it's not like anything goes. And so I think there's an enormous amount of projections in this domain onto the French, onto the Latin people in general, I would say, but certainly onto the French, that some of which is probably accurate and some of which is the fantasy of the 
of the person who expresses it of more course. than the person that is being uh, designated, you know. Well, I think we're probably going to get into that a lot more in a lot more depth instead of just talking about the French accent in terms of projections and in, as we get into your content. And so the first thing that I would love to just lead with is you speak a lot about desire. And it seems to me that, especially since, you know, our audience is primarily women, we address women, the modern woman, who's moving it and shaking it in so many different ways. And what I'm finding a lot is that women in relationships, and I don't want to make a generalization, you know, with statistics and all that, but just anecdotally, I find often women are in relationships where they've either lost the desire or the desire has shifted or they don't even have juice for desire after working a full day. And I'm curious to see, you know, why is, you know, this is such a cornerstone to relationships. And I would love to hear your take on, first of all, what do you mean by desire? And how is that such a foundation for healthy relationships? So I, I really like the fact that you, you start by asking me to define the terms if you want, right? So that we really know what we are talking about. Now, um, we could take a scientific definition for desire. We could take a behavioral, a hormonal, uh, you know, there's loads of ways to enter. I tend to think more in existential terms if you want. And I began to think about the nature of desire because it is probably one of the most important elements of modern life, meaning that desire is to own the wanting. Desire is the expression of a sovereign self. Desire points to free will. You can force people to do. You can never force them to desire. It is an ultimate expression of our free identity, if you want. And so, and in the realm of intimate relationships, sexual desire has become central because this is the first time in the history of humankind that we are meant to remain sexually connected to ourselves and to our partner, not because we want multiple children, as in sex appropriation, nor, at least in the West, some of us privileged women know that sexuality is no longer just a marital duty for women. So it is all about, do I want it? Do I feel like it? Do I, do, do I want this to be part of my experience? And we know that one of the real challenges for women in relationships in general is this dialectic, right, between how do I connect to you without losing me and how do I stay connected with me without losing you? Hence the notion of staying attached to one's own wanting, to one's own inclinations, preferences, desires, is challenging for women in relationships throughout. Hmm. Yeah, and I think what I love what you're saying about there is you own the wanting because it's one thing to like sort of recognize it. Oh, I want this. But there's something really proactive in the owning it. Yes, because it gives it it points to the agency, right? If one of the things that's very typical for women is that if the other person wants, she often knows what she wants because the other person has said, oh, I want to go to this place. And then she says, no, I don't really want this place. Now she has a better sense of what she wants because she's 
kind of positioning it in reaction, in response to, in contrast to what the other person wants. So it's not like she can be listed on her own. And then when she already knows what she wants, the second challenge is to actually drive it, to stay connected to it, to not lose it in the transaction with another person. It is, it, it, this is true for sexual desire. This is true for one's overall sense of self, of how do I take care of others, be it in my job, be it in my family, my family of origin or my current family, or in my relationship, and how do I not lose touch with my own? It is a, a, a real challenge, and I would say it's universal. This is this is women in business, as women in professional life, as women in other realms of familial um, uh, obligations. It's just essential to the, to the challenge of female identity is how does she navigate self and other? How does she know what she wants when she says that with the wanting of others, the wanting of her friends, of her mother, of her children, of her boss, mm. of her colleagues? And then, so, oh God, that's so deep. I feel it in my own life too. And do men just have a healthier relationship with desire because it's more connected to them and not reliant on the other? Or what do you see as a trend Great there? question. Great question. Let me put it to you in, in a different language. Traditionally, we would say that women are socialized for connection. And men are socialized for autonomy. Mm-hmm. If women are socialized for connection, then their greatest resource is in their ability to connect to others. But their greater vulnerability is about staying connected to themselves. Oh. If men are socialized for autonomy, then their resource is their ability to hold on to themselves. They know what they want. They can go and get it. But their vulnerability is in the fear that they would lose their autonomy if they create intimacy. So these are dialectics. You know, we all straddle the same two needs. We all need connection and separateness. We all need security and freedom. But I would say that if you look at gender socialization, you will find that the vulnerability for men is not how to develop their autonomy, but how to deal with the fear of the loss of the autonomy in the realm of relationships. Whereas for the women, the difficulty is not how to connect, but how to stay connected to themselves. Mm. Yeah, I'm curious to know, once we've identified desire, and we own it, and we have some practices, and I'm, I know you have an online workshop and an online course that you're doing around desire that will have more practices in it. So I'm excited to hear more about that. But once we have practices in our lives that are kind of staying connected to desire, how do we, is it possible to rekindle desire? I mean, is, first of all, is it possible for desire to die? And then can it be rekindled? Because that's another thing that I'm seeing that once that goes, it's like, well, you can never get it back or... You know, we, it's like it's like a slippery fish sometimes. Right. This desire. So I would I would I would say describe this differently. Yes, desire dies, mm. uh, but I wouldn't say it dies. I mean, sometimes it dies. Generally, I would say desire is more like the moon. It goes through intermittent eclipses. Mm-hmm. Desire ebbs and flows. Many of us lose connections 
to ourselves, to our net, to, to our to our sense of excitement, to our arousal, to our playfulness, to our aliveness, to our vibrancy. We all use it. The difference is that some of us know what to do to resuscitate. And so the ebb and flow is not that it doesn't that we don't disconnect from ourselves, but that we know how to reconnect. There's a, a way of asking a question that I find very, very powerful that I borrow from the work of Gina Ogden, a colleague of mine, who has written wonderful stuff, by the way, on women and sexuality and female desire. And she asks a question like this. I turn myself off by, or I shut down when? Mm. And broaden it. It's not just sexually. It's not the same question as you turn me off when and what turns me off is. They basically talk about when I stop thinking about myself, when I don't take care of myself, when I don't go in nature, when I don't see my friends, when I stop singing and playing the music I love, when I am disconnected from my partner, when I'm disconnected from my body, when I don't like my body, when I'm loading it. I mean, it's really in her relationship with herself, fundamentally around two areas, the area of self-worth and the area of permission giving for pleasure. And when you ask the question in reverse, I turn myself on when, I, I elicit my desires when, I awaken myself how, by, rather than you turn me on when or what turns me on is. They will tell you the same thing in reverse. I awaken my desire when I think of myself, when I take care of myself, when I time of myself, when I give myself the time to go and do the things that I enjoy, that make me feel alive, that make me feel worthy, that make me feel good. And from that place of aliveness, of the rekindling with one's erotic self, flows the desire. Mm-hmm. And what about like in relationship? Now you have two people. It's one thing to stay, you know, connected to your own desire and to realize the ebbs and flows, which I love, by the way, because it just gives us permission to be human and to have that ebb and flow is a wonderful analogy. But what about in relationship? You've got two people, two desires. Yes, 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 So, you know, here's the first thing that jumped to me. I I, I haven't even let you finish the question, so maybe I should actually listen to the question. No, jump in. It's a conversation. Let me hear it. Cut me off. I love it. So what jumps in immediately, of course, is that in relationships, one of the things that often you will notice with women in in line with what I described before is that she knows more what she wants when it's in opposition of what the other person wants because when she wants what the other one wants she often wonders is this really what I want or am I just trying to please the other she doesn't know how to know what she wants when the other one wants the same and still feel like it's hers Ah. so as a result she often is much more vocal about what she doesn't like Yet desire, you can't desire not something. You always desire something. (laughs) You cannot formulate desire as a negation. I desire not to feel something? No. I desire to feel that other thing. And that is where really her challenge lies. So often with a partner, she finds herself articulating her dislike, her criticism, her short, you know, the shortcomings rather than what she would like instead. Now, you know, any criticism is a wish in disguise, but it is often much better to actually articulate our wish or our desire than to articulate our frustration about the lack thereof. And yet we women, in that sense, we are masters. 
So that's one of the things that she needs to learn. And if she wants to stay connected to the other person, why? Because if she just becomes critical and negative, the other person stops listening, stops listening to her wish and only maintains their defensive stance towards her criticism and her frustration. Mm -hmm. So that's when you get a classic disconnect. Mm -hmm. The second thing is that sometimes she needs to learn to create boundaries, to give herself that time, to give herself the things that are just privacy with herself, if you want, or what I like to call intimacy with herself, Mm -hmm. you know, so that she can also have an intimacy with the partner. Mm -hmm. And then the next thing is that sometimes she, you know, needs to challenge what I think is uh, maybe one of the great problems of modern intimacy, which is that she often turns to one person wanting one, that one person to give her everything. Mm-hmm. And that in itself becomes a source of frustration. So it's not so much that she can't express her desires, but that she comes with all her desires to one person and basically would like this one man or woman to satisfy what normally an entire community needs to be built for. Mm-hmm. And so what, you, what I often find myself doing is asking her, who else is in your world? Who populates your inner world? Who do you reach out to? Who do you communicate about what? And can we dismantle this big romantic ideal that there will be one person who will basically become an extension of you? Because when that happens, that in itself becomes the death of the erotic in the most unanticipated way. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a lot of it is about integrating rather than fragmenting, but at the same time not integrating to a point of it being so fusional that she has no sense of boundaries, you know, that she can say stop. Now, a basic example, you know, a typical daily example is at what point does she stop cleaning, organizing, fixing, doing, being instrumental and just say I'm sitting down now and I'm just, you know, doing nothing or reading or listening to music or or enjoying, whatever, enjoying. At what point does he say, enough work, now me, rather than I have to be perfect. And once I have been perfect, then I have earned my desire. Yeah? Now I'm allowed oh. to want because I've, I've done everything that was expected. Many women in this age of perfection have to really learn to just say, it's enough for today, and now me rather than wait till she's like exasperated or frustrated or like flooded beyond and then she doesn't know to experience desire because then she experiences deserving. Now she's in the realm of resentment and now she doesn't just say I want, she says I deserve, right? The deserving is the wanting for the deprived. It's the people who don't really feel that they are allowed to want so they have to be really at wit's end to finally say, now me. But then they say it with such a violence sometimes or such an aggression that they can shake up the whole house. <laughs> That's what happens to her many times in relationships. She doesn't say it so earlier when it's just the, hey, I feel like it or I want to. Mm-hmm. She screams it. I deserve, I've had it, I've had enough. You know, please, you know, no and, and then she blames him or her or whoever else is around her for, for not being allowed to say this sooner. No. No, she just doesn't feel like she can because she first needs to be perfect, have it all done, and then she feels that desire is a reward rather than desire is basically part of her human rights. 
Oh my God, does this sound familiar? No, I mean, I feel <laughs> this way too. And that perfection and, you know, it's, I never linked it with desire. It's so interesting because I think that once we, when we're living in that loop of perfection, then that criticism can't help but spill out because we're putting so much on ourselves. We bring those standards to our relationships and then, then it's nothing but lack and criticism and not good enough on the inside and on the outside. Correct. And, yeah. Correct. And then, yeah. but, but it's very, it's really, it's a, it's a, it's kind of an epidemic at this point. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you've got the mo- most competent, successful, powerful group of women in history walking around constantly with an inner voice of flawed and critical and not enough. It's just tragic. Right. You know, and resentful. I should add that too. And resentful because how dare you sit down when there is still so much to do? Don't you see? Well, why don't you just sit down? Does it really matter? Is that going to be written on your epitaph? You cleaned mm-hmm. well? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> or you organized the Legos well or whatever, you know, uh, or you, you deprived yourself nicely, you know. Um, so it's it's a very interesting thing to, to help women allow themselves the permission to experience pleasure, which is really where desire resides, to experience freedom, to, re- to experience autonomy and all of that without her instantly feeling selfish and guilty. Well, what's interesting about what you're saying is that because we're kind of hardwired to touch into our desire through the other, right? It's hard to kind of get in touch with that. I mean, it's like a muscle we have to flex to find the source of our desire within. Because I think, you know, a lot of us are like, all right, you know, my partner, man or woman, whoever we're in relationship with, okay, can, you know, make me desire you. Or we're waiting for something to spark, you know, oh, I'm just not attracted. I don't desire him anymore. He just sits on the couch, you know. But if there's a way that we can rekindle the desire within ourselves without that mm-hmm. other, I think that's kind of the secret so here is sauce. the trick of this. This is so essential, that sentence you just mentioned. Make me want. Yeah. She says to him. Uh, make me want. That uh, you can't. You can't make someone want. You can make all kinds of things happen, and then you can elicit a condition for which her wanting will emerge. But you can't make someone want. And um, women abdicate that. Now, interestingly, and you can really see it in the realm of the erotic and of sex so clearly. He can want as much as he wants. If she does not, if she's not into it, if she doesn't like herself, there will be zero response. The shop is closed. It's almost as if, you, you know, there's a beautiful term. It's complicated, but it says it all. It's called phylogenea. And my colleague, Marta Mayana, who's the greatest uh, researcher on women and sexuality, if she doesn't like herself, she does not understand why anybody else would want to touch her. Oh, God. Except if you forgot to put on your glasses. Right. Right? I mean, so she has to like herself first. Mm-hmm. It's very interesting. She has to like herself first. We rarely talk about women's narcissism. But in fact, in the realm of sexuality, it is probably one of the most important unknown facts. It's like in heterosexual couples, I'll hear plenty men say, nothing turns me on more than to see her turned on. Mm. I have yet to hear a woman say that. 
No, she doesn't get turned on because he's turned on. She gets turned on because she is the turn on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's a very different premise. And, and she can only allow herself to feel that when she feels good enough about herself. Otherwise, she blocks it on the kind of dual track of the erotic and of desire, which is the excitation track and the inhibition track, she will really shut it down and inhibit it. So how does she develop a better liking with herself, which then allows her to welcome the attraction, the desire of another person? Mm-hmm. And it's not through the relationship. It's through the self-liking. It's the opposite. It's like because women are socialized, so much to be relational, to actually be able to let go and feel freer sexually, they have to not be as relational as much as they have to be in relationship with themselves. It's the opposite. Hmm. It's the opposite. So, and it's the same opposite in sex for the man. As much as men are socialized, for me, hardwired is cultural. Huh? I'm not really talking here evolutionary or biological as much as I think of it in cultural terms. Hmm. But if he's socialized, to be able to be more autonomous and fearless and competitive and, and, and self-sufficient and self-sustaining and the difficulty is on the connection scale, sexually, you will find that men are often very much thinking about her even in order to feel good about himself. Mm-hmm. Whereas she needs to feel good about herself in order to be able to think about him. Mm-hmm. It's the flip side. What works in our relational life is turned upside down in order to liberate our erotic life. Well, I mean, I just feel like the implications, here we are, we're in an age, a new feminism, so to speak. There's definitely a rise in in the demand for feminine leadership. And yet I think a lot of what holds us back as women is this lack of ownership on that individual level of our own desire and also lack of self-acceptance. Like I don't, you know, we're working on freeing ourselves from this perfection and actually really kind of falling in love with ourselves so that we are a turn on, not just in terms of our relationships, but that we can have that juice and charisma and energy, frankly, to lead in a way that's powerful and impactful. But then we will need to learn that our appreciation of ourselves doesn't come because we're perfect but more like Brene Brown talks about it, because we welcome the gift of imperfection. If we actually are more compassionate with ourselves, we accept our imperfections, we fuck up many times, we're not the greatest at everything, and we still like ourselves and can get even a good laughter at it, then we will be in a much better place. I think what happened, you know, um, in the boomer generation, in the first wave of feminism, Something particular happened here, and here I'm going to bring a cultural observation because it's very different from Belgium, where I'm from, Flemish Belgium or Francophone Belgium, it doesn't matter, from the from a European model, is that American feminism really emphasized sameness. Mm. We are the same, and therefore we should earn the same, we should have the same ability to climb the ladder, we should have the same access. Whereas the European model actually really said it differently. We are different. Therefore, create institutions, social support, maternity care, you know, family leave, uh, um, 
um, childcare uh, that allows us to then go out and do what the men are doing so that we can work as well. But first, you have to provide institutional support. Otherwise, we cannot be equal. So in order to be equal, we have to acknowledge our difference versus the model here, which was we are the same, therefore we are equal. Mm -hmm. And from that point on, I think there has been a divide inside American women between the feminine and the powerful or the feminine and the professional, if you want, is that, you know, you you can't really integrate those two. You are either smart and powerful and this and that, or you are feminine, but the, you know, and they are separated. They are segregated from each other. And if you're going to do the feminine, it's not because you really experience it in that integrated way. It's more because you're performing femininity. You're performing seduction. You're putting on the clothes. You're putting on the makeup. But it's like, it's like a costume. It's not really an extension of who you are, and it goes with you in every place. It's because you've decided to, to put it on, you know, for the, for the occasion, for the role, for the gig, for the job, for the deal. Mm-hmm. And it's really crippling, I think, to many women to have to constantly decide that because then if I'm going to work with the other one, today I'm going to work with the powerful one, and that powerful one is a neutered one, right? It's neutered. But of course, it also is more masculine. I come home and it's very difficult to put the other one back on. You know, it's not like it's just a matter of taking off the clothes or putting, you know, it's a shift here that I used to watch this. It's changed the day. But there used to be a period where you had all these women in suits and sneakers on the subways in New York. You know, it's like there was a sneaker and then there was a high heel shoe that you put on. And it's just like, no, put one that is comfortable, that you can go everywhere, that is who you are. It's like, why this split? Yeah, this is like, you know, the racing shoe for the race, literally for the race, the professional race, and then the other shoe for for the connection. Um, it doesn't work this way in my experience. It really creates a much greater split mm-hmm. that is much more difficult afterwards to to reconnect with and to and so people lose it and they lose it and they then two three five ten years later they suddenly say where has that part of me gone mm-hmm. like you know I've been in that other world and I've numbed it mm-hmm. and so from there I begin to think okay that's the question you asked for me before how do we rekindle desire you rekindle desire by rekindling first of all the permission to think about oneself and not in the productive instrumental way. The erotic is totally unproductive. You accomplish nothing there. It's just a state of aliveness and of vitality and of sensuality. It's that. And you help women to re-give themselves the permission for that. And then without feeling that they are either selfish, guilty, non-productive, you know, all of that, that they're wasting their time in this whole state. And then... You give them the permission for pleasure. And pleasure, you know, it's for its own sake. You don't accomplish much without having the puritanical model of pleasure, that it's good for the senses and good for the body and good for the skin. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just, it's fun. It's nice. It feels good. It doesn't have to be good for anything. It just has to feel good. Mm. It's a very different concept of pleasure. Pleasing oneself. The idea of pleasing herself. And to do it, in an embodied fashion that includes her sensuality, not just that she pleases herself by stuffing herself or she pleases herself when she takes four days away, you know, once a year 
you know, with her girlfriends in this kind of, you know, escape from my life kind of version. Nothing wrong with that, but <laughs> something needs to come home with her too. And then you begin to talk also about the sexuality. Um, because we are sexual beings and sexuality isn't how often she has sex and how long the sex lasts and how many orgasms she has. It's, it's basically a connection with her erotic self. That's, it's a much broader definition of sexuality when we talk about rekindling desire. And that's the progression that she needs to go mm. to. Mm. What about, I mean, you've just totally articulated a trend that has been happening, but I think that we, through these conversations, through your work, through a lot that's happening out in the world, women are starting to protest because it's actually just inhumane to live eight hours, nine hours, 10 hours out of your day, like as a subhuman being with only like half a body. I mean, when you cut out your femininity and you're a woman, or as a man too, you know, you live with just one one polarity, it's just actually not living in a full human experience. But when we do that, I guess my question here is, what's the male implication of that? Because what we're seeing is, as women are stepping more and more into leadership and taking on these roles, that there's just not, you know, because they're doing that, there's, you know, it's really hard to come home. And then there's two men at the house, or there's too much masculine, both men and women running on an excess of masculine coming home and trying to have a juicy, you know, experience both intimately and just in day-to-day relationship, it's not happening. So you've just described on the women's side how to work on that. What about the men? Like what's happening there that you're seeing that they could flip? I think the first thing that is happening on the men's side, which is to the advantage of many, is that the younger man, the millennial man, um, is very different from his boomer father. Mm. Um, often, for that matter, you know, 50% of millennial men grew up in single-parent households of women. So they have already been at the table with a woman their entire life who helped him develop a much more emotionally fluent language. Um, my experience in working with millennial men is they can talk and they have access to their inner lives in ways that the boomer men just, you know, could never uh, access, or not never, but much less. Mm -hmm. That's one. But in any case, your question is a key question because the lives of women will never change until the men change. Mm -hmm. And that means their life has to change too. So I think that traditionally everything was divided around gender. And it was a rather dualistic model, and there was only two kinds, and it's male and female, and there was just very few models for what male can be like, and it's just a few more models about what female can look like. Mm-hmm. And we are definitely entering a queer spectrum, which is a word that some people are very familiar with and others less, but it is a spectrum that is much more fluid. And maybe divisions and roles and responsibilities are going to be created not by gender, but by competence. Mm-hmm. There are relationships where the women are way better at going out there, making the money, building the companies, getting the positions, and the men are actually much more competent at being home. They are more patient, they are more empathic, they are much more connected to the needy, needy details of the child. And um, and women will need to be able to accept that and not think that they, they should do both. <laughs> you know, that it's a... Okay, you can be wonderfully woman by 
of taking on the parts of you that you are more confident about, resourceful about. And so that is going to be a whole new division. I think we're seeing more and more of it, but I think it's very difficult for men and women to let go of their traditional bastions of power. It's as hard for men to see women you know, break the ceiling as it is for women see men become better at the domestic and at the child-rearing than they ever thought they were. Mm. You know, they, mm. they, they want his help, but they can't accept that maybe he's actually better at it and that maybe that's really not her natural inclination and that motherhood is not an instinct. It is learned. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that some women are better at learning to run companies than to take care of diapers and babies and children and schools and all of that. So that's the first thing. We really need to develop much greater fluidity and flexibility around gender role and organizations. Mm -hmm. The second thing is that every company these days is talking about emotional intelligence, Mm -hmm. soft power, empathy. I mean, you know, it was a time when it was all about competition, ambition, fearlessness, you know, pushing for. No, now they realize and there's many, many reasons why we need empathy to enter into the training of staff. But it's really interesting, isn't it, that this traditionally female attributed quality is now on the program of any, you know, as a speaker in many companies, I can tell you, I'm brought in to talk about emotional intelligence. Mm. I'm brought in to talk about relational intelligence because everybody understood that soft power isn't soft because it is in just a position to heart. Mm. <laughs> it is soft because it, it, it operates differently, but it is power that is the key word mm-hmm. here. So what we're seeing is the masculine is entering the domestic and the intimate realm, but the feminine is also entering the professional world of mm-hmm. all sorts. And then there is going to be how internally, how does the man who is more the stay-at-home dad or who is the person who earns less money or is the one who has a more flexible job and therefore is the one who does the shopping and all of that remain connected to his masculinity? And how is the woman who is making decisions the whole day remaining connected to her sexuality? I mean, there is a reason 45 million women work 50 shades, isn't it? Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> and the, and the gen, and let's put it like this: the women who are submissive and subjugated in their lives probably did not get turned on by it. Right. <laughs> it's the women who are in positions of power and decision making who long fantasies of surrender. Right. So we are going to see that the the the, the erotic imagination is going to complement. It's going to bring out the scripts and the experiences that we wish to have in our life and that we don't have necessarily at work or at home. So we are very good to our erotic mind at complementing the missing pieces. Mm-hmm. And that's what is going to take place, I think, over the next two decades. And by that, you mean that we will be developing more faculty of the imagination and being focused on that, you know, bringing desire and that will craft a little bit more or have more of a play in, in how, we, how we relate through our... We're going to play with power. The same way that you play with power in business and at work, you play with power. Every relationship is an interplay of power exchange. Any relationship, mm-hmm. from a child to a parent, from two partners, there is no relationship without power dynamics. And there is no sexual relationship without power dynamics. And we constantly do yin-yang. 
Where one person is too much in a decision-making role, they will complement it with a more soft surrender role. When one person is in a more empathic role, they'll become complementing it with a more decision-making role. Where it's, you're going to see this, and it's going to happen in the erotic and in the relational and in the professional, on all three levels. Right. What were you saying about the imagination having a hand in that? Because one of the ways that you... <laughs> You know, one of the ways that you complement the missing parts of your life is through your imagination. I mean, it's our fantasy life, our imagination, right. our inner world that creates the realities that are not necessarily available, right? If, I, right? if I'm young, I fantasize being older, and if I'm older, I think about being younger. These are products of our imagination. If, you know, if I, if I fear death, I connect to my aliveness because I'm imagining, you know, the forces of life inside of me. If I'm masculine, I will fantasize experiences that draw out the feminine. If I am more feminine, I will fantasize experiences that emphasize the masculine in me. And the erotic mind has amazing ways of doing that. If I am constantly making decisions, I will fantasize experiences where other people decide for me and for once I don't have to say anything. If I am constantly in a situation where other people tell me what to do, I will fantasize moments where I get to decide exactly what I want and everybody says, amen, yes. (laughs) If I, you know, we have a way through our erotic mind to create experiences that bifurcate the pitfalls of the roles we're in. Mm-hmm. If I'm shy, I'm going to have fantasy. I'm, you know, if I'm a shy person, I rarely fantasize being shy. If I'm a shy person, I generally fantasize being bold and daring. Mm-hmm. If I'm very powerful and I have a responsibility over a lot of people, I will fantasize situations where other people feel responsible for me and I can just be carried on a platter and I don't have to think about anyone. If I'm constantly thinking about others, I will want a place where others think of me or I think of me. It's, it's just this constant, it's not an either or, it's really a, a, a dance, a much more kind of dance where we, we, we create with our mind the experiences which we don't have enough in our reality. Mm. Yeah. Oh, it's just lovely. I love that use of imagination. It's real. What you're talking about is real. I mean, I know it's imaginative and it's compensating, but at the same time, it's actually providing a very real purpose in our lives. And It's uh, not compensating, it's complementing. Complementing, yes, complementing. It's complementing. It's the way we are, you know, anyone here who has ever been in the presence of children knows that the child cannot live in their reality without augmenting and complementing their reality through play. And play is every fantasy situation that is not the one that they live in reality. Right. It's no different for adults. We just don't think about it like that, and many of us lose it. Or we discard that whole part of our life as like, you know, daydreaming and not worthwhile and... Childish, not really adults, refusing to grow up, all of that. And then we become busy worker bees, you know, uh, lamenting the loss of our sense of aliveness. Mm I really feel like we could go on and on. You, you are an amazing woman in this field. 
It's just an honor to talk to you, and you have so much content. It's super inspiring. I would say one more question here. What you're basically saying, and you were talking about this, we're entering into a queer sort of genderless era, and I agree with you on that. And there's a lot of things in your work where a a lot of the boundaries that have held us together almost in a society albeit in an unhealthy way, are breaking down. And there's a groundlessness, I feel, coming and that, that we're in and with regards to our relationships and also who are we as beings, as gender beings, as women, as men. What do you recommend for women especially to grab onto in this era of chaos is kind of a strong word, but an an era of new. Everything's new. Everything's being recreated. And we're rethinking things, especially with your perspective here. What's something solid that we can hold on to that can, you know, that we can fall back on and know that it's always going to be there? People. Yeah. People. Community. That's the only thing we have at this point. We don't have the traditional pillars. We don't have the model. So what we have is conversation, which is really what your gathering is about, Mm -hmm. is creating real-life embodied experiences where people come together and discuss all the dilemmas of modern or even post-modern living. Um, and, And in those conversations, bit by bit, we dismantle and we challenge the old hierarchies. It's time for women to be angry without being considered bitches or aggressive or masculine. It's time for them to not constantly worry about being liked. It's time that they feel that they can ask for the same amount that the men are asking. It's time that she feels that she can be seductive without thinking that she's a slut. It's time that she can integrate femininity and power as part of her success and her aspirations for it. It's like, it's all these divisions. Basically, the dismantlement of patriarchy, seriously, if you want to put the name on it. Mm-hmm. But what will replace it isn't a matriarchy, and it's not genderless, it's gender fluid. Mm-hmm. It's different. Mm-hmm. We, we are just living way too long these days to just abide by one model. And we understand it in the in the in the professional world, in the business world, the tech world gets this completely. Everything is about multiplicity. But when it comes to gender identity and relationships, we are left with very few monolithic, narrowly thought out models that don't serve us anywhere. Mm-hmm. They just don't serve us. So what happens is that the people get blamed for not succeeding. Right? You get blamed because you're divorced, but nobody ever questions is the model of marriage so sound. Mm -hmm. Why do we think marriage is the sound arrangement, but the people who don't succeed, they're the failures? And so too for everything else. If you didn't succeed with children, it's not because there's a lack of childcare and a lack of good schools and a lack of this and that. It's because you didn't know how to juggle your schedule. And so we are privatizing social problems and making the individual responsible for it. Mm-hmm. And I think that if women come together, it is really the biggest challenge is not to think that it's just a matter of each woman on her own coming up for societal solutions to societal problems. They need to be collective solutions for collective problems mm-hmm. in which she is a piece of the voice, but she's not responsible on her own to deal with the lack of supports that the system should provide her. 
to me, mm. that is going to be the biggest, the biggest shift that women can offer these days is actually a challenge to the excesses of individualism. Mm. Well, thank you so much for your time. And, is that um, too abstract? <laughs> no. Too abstract? Are you kidding? It was, it's, <laughs> you have a way of bringing the abstract into the visceral. And I don't know how else to explain it, but it feels very practical and yet very grounded and in a mental lineage, or I don't know how else you want to say that, but you've done a lot of research and it's, it feels very accessible. And I so appreciate that. Thank you so much. Thank you. I mean, I was thinking as I was saying it, I mean, I can't even tell you just this week with the amount of women I met, how often I, my, 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 my eyes fill up. I'm like thinking, you carry it all, don't you? And you actually think you should. And you still think that you're not carrying it well enough. And you think that it's, it's like, I'm thinking, my God, can we stop privatizing, personalizing difficulties that are systemic, as if they're your personal challenge? And it's just a matter of management and organization and, and God knows what else. Of, 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 it's not like that. It's really bigger than you. And we have to remember that it's bigger than you. And then all come together and address it and make those changes. And then our lives will be better. And so will the ones of the people around us because we will be less upset. You know, and rather than thinking we're upset because we can't do it all, we will be upset because we are thinking that we should do it all. It's a different stance. Amen, sister. May it be so. <laughs> May it be so. Like I said, there could be more here, but so much looking forward to spending more time with you at Emerging Women Live in San Francisco in October and until then take good care and we'll see you very soon thank you so much thank you very much look forward to being there as well okay bye bye Esther